Whether we're talking about business, wellness, travel, or relationships, I've always thought age is just a number. Welcome to Ageless with me, Cynthia Raleigh, and my daughter, Kit Keenan. Hi, everyone. It is Kit and Cynthia, and today we have an amazing guest, Rizwana Bashir, who is the founder of Peak. Maybe you could give a little bit of an intro about you and Peak and how your journey started. Yeah, so I am originally from the UK, you might be able to tell. (laughs) So I was born and raised in the UK. My parents are both Pakistani and I moved to America to go to business school and I ended up starting my company. And so peak.com is a platform for experiences and we help people book cool, fun things to do. And I can talk a little bit more about that journey and what that's been like. So you grew up in a Pakistani community in London. In the UK, actually, so in the north of England. So I was probably the last person that expected to be sitting kind of with you guys today. So I was born and raised in the UK. My parents were from Pakistan. My dad sold fruit and vegetables. My mum didn't work. And it was a pretty deprived community. So it was pretty poor. You know, after 40 years in England, my mum still doesn't speak English. And so, and women didn't really get to work. And so there was a lot of abuse at home. It was like kind of quite a violent place. And there was a lot of kind of hardship in terms of growing up. And most of the women that I knew were in forced marriages to people that they didn't choose. I didn't wear Western clothes till I was 18. So it was a very different place to grow up. And my idea and my ambition was quite limited. I just didn't see anyone around me that was successful. And so my perspective was very, very limited around what I could do. Because I sit here and we've raised $50 million for Peak and we help millions of people book these great experiences. And I'm doing a job that I'm really passionate about, but I really recognize how extremely fortunate I've been in order to have that journey because most of the people that I grew up with, especially the women, did not have anywhere near that opportunity. Wait, so then how in the world did you end up at Oxford? I was quite fortunate because I grew up in a very kind of poor area, but there was a school where I lived that took the top 30% of kids. And so I passed this exam and I went to this school. It was a girls' school and one of my teachers had gone to Cambridge. So it kind of all of a sudden made it possible. And I think I realized, I think kids are very savvy and smart. And I realized, oh, well, I don't think I want to stay here. Like when I look at the life of the women around me, it sucks actually, you know? And so I realized that education was something I was extremely passionate about and curious about, but it could be potentially a route. And so I worked really hard. I was a super, super nerd in a way that probably, you know, now is not, well, it was certainly not glamorous then, but is is not probably still now. And I ended up doing really well at school and I got all my A's and was top of my class. I was pretty competitive probably. And then I ended up applying to go to Oxford without telling my parents. And I applied and I got in and it completely changed my life. And so they let me go because I was the only kid in my community that ever got into Oxford. So it's kind of special and they understood that even though both of them didn't read and write and stuff, they they still understood that that was a big deal. And so they let me go and then I got to Oxford and it completely, you know, changed me. And I, all of a sudden, that was when I understood what opportunity could be there. And what did you study at Oxford? So I studied philosophy, politics and economics. I actually went to study medicine. 
So very classic mm. kind of thing to do. And then I decided that I really didn't want to be a doctor. And I was really passionate about those other subjects. And when I was at Oxford, I became president of the Oxford Union, which is a debating society. Again, it's quite, quite nerdy. But in the UK, what the Oxford Union does is that you bring together really kind of famous people who are great at what they do. Over the years, people like Winston Churchill or Mother Teresa will come and speak at the union. And so when I was there... Amazing. Yeah, I, I basically, you know, had this job where every week you'd have a Nobel laureate or you'd have a Madeleine Albright came and John McCain came. And I just had this experience where all of a sudden my ambition had been quite limited on what you could do. And all of a sudden it was like, you could do anything you put your mind to, like the world is so big. And so it really fostered a lot more ambition for me. And it made me realize that there was an opportunity out there to live my life and have an impact that was much greater than I could have ever imagined. And so that was extremely inspiring. And if I hadn't had that experience, I don't think I would have, you know, moved to America and, you know, started my business. I need to ask you, was there any guest that you had throughout that union that you felt really changed your life? Or was there one super inspiring person? Actually, for me, John McCain was extremely inspiring. I think that the fact that he had gone through, now I've been to Vietnam and seen the Hanoi prison, the fact that he had gone through this extreme suffering and had learned to forgive and had learned to move on and, and have a desire to give back to you know, his community in the world, I think was really inspiring for me. He's also someone who I was fortunate I got to spend about a week with him in DC as a student, got to come here and you know have breakfast at the Senate and all of these things. And it gave me a perspective on kind of government and his curiosity. He would read books all the time and was very interested in the rest of the world. And as somebody who, you know, I'm British Pakistani and often being Pakistani wasn't something you could really celebrate. I think for a lot of my life, it's been something where that part of the world has not been celebrated. If anything, it's been perceived as being quite negative. You know, we associate Muslims in Pakistan with, with kind of terrorism and all these negative things. And I think it was really nice for me to see somebody who was actually really interested in the Middle East and these other parts of the world from a you know, historical, cultural perspective. So, you know, in many ways, I think that was a very influential person for me. Obviously, he's somebody where, you know, maybe all my political views didn't align with his, but I found him a very special person and someone who I think was very smart and thoughtful. And that forgiveness piece really mattered to me because I think as somebody who had actually had a lot of suffering in my life as well, it was really important to realize that you have to go above those things. And it can be really easy to be caught in the pain or the past. And it's important to kind of recognize what we learn from those and forgive those that might have done kind of quite awful things against us. So it's a very important, valuable life lesson for me. Maybe we can talk about your adolescence a little bit and how that has affected your relationships now. Like, what does your family think? You live very far away. Your lifestyle is completely different from theirs, I'm sure. Yeah, I think one of the things that was kind of challenging about kind of making this transition from a very different world into now is that, you know, it has involved kind of some big, big kind of changes in my life. And part of that is that when I was a kid, unfortunately, I was sexually abused by a neighbor. And one of the things that I did as kind of an adult was I went back to my local community and I prosecuted my abuser and he actually ended up going to jail. And so wow. that was a big deal. And it was one of the, I think, moments for me that was wow. quite life-changing because it was something, again, that was really shameful, but that I realized it wasn't my shame to have and that this person was still in my community doing terrible things and that people were covering it up a little bit like 
the revolution we've had now with Me Too. And that for me was a couple of years before Me Too happened. And so I think what that meant is that unfortunately my parents weren't supportive of it and they didn't support me. And I think they were just kind of thinking about themselves and they felt that that was going to bring a lot of shame. And culturally, they didn't want to deal with that. And so that was a really tough decision for me because although we'd had the challenges and there'd been a lot of violence in the household and it'd been hard growing up with my relationship with my parents because there had been a lot of violence towards me, I think once I realized that they were also not supportive of something that I think is just morally wrong, right? You can't have people abusing young kids and getting away with it. It was easier for me to recognize that my values didn't align with theirs and that I needed to be comfortable with the idea that I was going to make that change. I was going to go and prosecute this person and that I was going to be estranged with my parents. And that's a hard decision. And I think I always wanted to have that kind of perfect family life. And and I didn't. And I got comfortable with it. And it was something that was pretty hard, both going through that trial, but also afterwards. And I ended up writing about it. And it was really when I wrote about it that I realized that was the real freedom for me, being able to say something had happened and turn it into something positive. So what ended up happening is that I wrote about it. The Guardian newspaper in the UK ended up publishing it as their front page story. A million people read it. And I started hearing from thousands of people from across the world, a guy in Maine who had been abused by a police officer, women in Nigeria, Japan, Switzerland. And so it ended up making me realize that so many of us have suffered a lot of this pain. And in the end, often our voices are so much more powerful than we think. And so I'd been given the privilege of a voice and the Guardian had been willing to let me write this essay about what we needed to do and why this had to stop. And so I used that voice and it was incredibly liberating for me. And I realized that I'm not defined by that one thing. It's one of many things that have created who I am. And it'll be one of the many things that I hopefully in the future can have an impact on. And so I think as entrepreneurs, you can have a very positive impact on the world in what you do. And so I take a lot of joy in peak and helping people find fun. But I also recognize that there's a lot of suffering in the world. And so we have to recognize that and be able to share that we've had that because actually it doesn't stop you from being able to transform your life. It doesn't stop you from being somebody who can evolve and change. And in the end, I learned a lot from going through that experience of sharing it. And it helped me have better relationships with people. And over the years, I've learned how to overcome some of the trauma there. And that's been important for me. And it's given me that resilience so that when other things might happen that might be traumatic, I can deal with that, you know. So I think it's not fun and I wish it hadn't happened, but it felt a lot more empowering to be able to stop that for others and realize that I had enough of a voice to not let things like that continue to happen. My God. God. I would want to do an entire episode about trauma. How do you think it differed just navigating your Pakistani identity in the UK versus when you moved to America? It's interesting. When I moved to America, it was a bit more of a fresh start. I think in the UK, we're a bit more obsessed with class. And so being in the UK, I realized even though I'd kind of had this journey where it kind of been very poor and very hard and there had been a lot of abuse and suffering in, in my childhood, it was something I felt quite ashamed about. It was only when I was living in America that I realized that our crucibles and our challenges are like kind of what define us. And so I'm a really resilient person, incredibly persistent, incredibly optimistic as well, which you definitely have to be as an entrepreneur. And so I think all of those things were things that I think in the UK, I couldn't kind of celebrate and embrace. And I always felt that I was going to be defined from the fact that I was born in a place that wasn't 
very nice and was pretty poor. And I think because the UK still had a lot of issues with class, it was quite refreshing to be in the US where I think people think about things as where are you going towards, not where did you come from? And if you came from somewhere that perhaps, you know, wasn't that celebratory or nice, well, good for you for getting there. And so I think in the US, embracing that ambition and that desire to have a big impact on the world was something that that was okay. And I felt that in the UK, I found it harder to do that without it seeming like I was being too pushy or that that was negative. The optimism part of this is what I really can identify with because I have often said I'm a pathological optimist, which I don't know, you maybe are. I need some therapy or, you know, maybe I need to study that in therapy. But I do think that coming from also a small town and not very, very middle class upbringing, you know, it was the optimism, that dream that I was going to do all these things. And that led me to be able to come to New York with nothing. And that optimism that as an entrepreneur, I have to have that every day because you have to always think that it's going to be better and brighter and more exciting and growing and the optimism and curiosity sort of go together, which really is kind of like the backbone, I think, also of Peak.com. I completely agree. I think there's so many obstacles when you're starting to be an entrepreneur and when you have an idea and you need people around you to be optimistic and you have to be pretty optimistic because you're trying to do something that's not been done before. And so certainly in terms of starting Peak.com, I hadn't been a founder before. This is my first time in being able to have the courage to go out there and ask for capital to start your business. And then there are inevitable failures. You know, So when we started Pete.com, we were saying, hey, we want to f- help people find great fun things to do. And so I'm a huge travel junkie, which I know you are as well, Cynthia. And whenever I go somewhere or even in my hometown, I want to find great adventures because I think it inspires me and it helps me have fun and be creative. And so when I started the business, it was actually after a trip to Istanbul. And I'd spent about 20 hours planning everything that we were going to do when we were there. And I wanted to learn about the history and I wanted to have fun with my girlfriends. And so I did all this work to find these cool experiences. And I just wondered why it was so hard. And so I ended up starting the business because I was inspired and I wanted to make it much easier for people to find cool things to do in their home city or abroad. And that might be zip lining with your kids, or it might be taking a cooking class or learning about something new in your home city that you hadn't thought about. I love the idea that if you have three hours, you can learn something new. And I scroll through the site just to kind of like be inspired and learn something new. And it's almost like definitely in New York, but where we are, but wherever you are, I think you can find those experiences where you're just curious. You want to learn something. You never want to stop learning. And that experience is you know, enriching for yourself, but you also may meet people. And it's almost like all these great things about all these other sites kind of all rolled into one. Yeah. I think one thing that I've realized is that experiences make you a lot happier. So 75% of people prefer an experience to a product, especially I think millennials and and younger people where we've realized like our identity is based on, on what we do and what we choose to do with our time. And we want that to be more fulfilling. And I think for kids, even, you know, taking kids on experiences and taking them out of their comfort zone means that instead of having the usual conversation about breakfast in school, they actually have a different vocabulary. 
and their brain development's different when you decide to take them to Florida and they go, you know, swimming with dolphins. And I think the fact is that you can really help your children and yourselves have much happier moments by spending your time in more fulfilling ways. And I think it's so easy for us to just watch Netflix or be at home or doing things that don't inspire us. And yet every time I go and learn about a new place or I explore a city in a different way, I did a running tour of New York and that was great. I just didn't know a lot of history and I kind of also felt like I was being healthy. So it was kind of two things in one. And I moved to New York recently. And so that was really fun for me because I just didn't know the history of Central Park and all this stuff. I think that for me, you can incorporate these things into your everyday life. And I think about them as everyday adventures. And every weekend should be something that you can go and have fun with and look forward to and be excited about. One of the businesses we work with actually he got inspired because in New York he hated just going for brunch every Saturday. We were on a panel together and I kind of got a lot of stink eye when I said, Oh, brunch is for people who don't have anything better to do. But actually, you know, you've got a day, right? Like why don't we use every day to be something special? And so so he started this business where he takes people out of the city to go skiing for the day or to go paintballing for the day or to go wine tasting for the day. And so you can just get picked up in New York. You can go with your friends. Nobody does an experience alone, by the way. We always do it with other people and go and have fun. And so I think, you know, you're going to remember that. And those memories are so powerful. They, they're locked in our moments. They make us happier. And so I completely agree. And so he was kind of like, forget brunch. Let's do these other things. And I really agree with that. And I I think that actually most, especially young people are going towards that of saying, our time is so precious. Let's make sure that it's really fun and great. And the ways in which we spend our time previously, which has been Netflix or going to a restaurant, there's so many better ways for us to to engage and have fun than those. And I think there's all these cool experiences that are beginning to be started. There's, there's great entrepreneurs that we work with that are starting completely new concepts. That's what I think is really great is that you're supporting all these new businesses, small businesses. In some ways, it wasn't what I was expecting. So when we started the business, I kind of was like, I just want to help everyone book cool things to do and spend their time in ways that makes them really happy. And then basically what happened is that we realized that people who do these businesses, you might be someone who is incredibly passionate about food and you want to help people understand the local community and food and you can go foraging and cook the food together and things like that. But you're not necessarily really great at marketing or having great tools to come online and all that stuff. And so we ended up building this software called Peep Pro where we help the businesses come online and grow their business and increase their revenues and do all of this stuff. And it actually meant that they could spend their time doing the fun stuff, things that make a business really fulfilling and they could get rid of the hours of admin. And so that's been really fulfilling. So when we hear from businesses and they're like, oh, I grew my business like 200% because I started using the tools that you provided and you've made a real big difference. That's been incredibly fulfilling for me because as an entrepreneur myself, I think knowing that you can help thousands of people kind of express their dreams and their passions so that if you are a real foodie, you can actually make that a job. It doesn't have to be something where you do your day job to make money. Actually, you can make your money by exploring that passion with other people. I think that the possibilities are endless. I mean, the things that I want to learn from art history to nutrition to, you know, I'd like to learn how to work on my vintage car myself. There's a million things. I would love, like, you can ask the site. Yeah. This is what I want to learn. Is there anyone out there that can yeah. give me this experience? Yeah, I think, like, you know, we try and do searches. And normally it's around things like surfing, which I know you're really passionate about, through to 
know, horseback riding or paddleboarding or whatever it is that you want to do. So a lot of it's around these active kind of adventures, but I think the opportunity is really big. Like this is a $200 billion market. I think it's going to be a trillion dollar industry. I think people are going to want to spend their time doing experiences and we're going to, we're going to be spending more and more of our money and time on this. And it's actually, I think a lot about your local area, right? So I think one thing that is really easy is that we kind of think about travel as being this kind of thing that we have to go really far away to learn or, or see something really and special. expensive and rarefied and exactly. exotic. And, and, you know, look, I'm a foreigner to America. I think America has amazing experiences. So I went to Yosemite and, you know, you're just hiking in this incredible natural wilderness. The same for Zion. So for Peak, we have an office in Utah. So I get to go there a lot and I do this hiking in Zion National Park. And I, it's gloriously beautiful and it costs so little to be able to get out there and see it. I think I'd really encourage people to actually recognize that where we live actually has some really special things as long as you're willing to look, you know, and that's part of the reason I've I've loved, you know, working what we're doing is because it also helps me find great things to do. So I might be going to Miami and I'm looking on peak.com and I'm like, cool, like I can go and see the swamps to go and have some beach adventures through to doing art tours. And so there's so much cool stuff in the cities we live in that we don't recognize and you know we don't kind of it seems like a lot of work so I kind of really love being able to share that passion with other people and make it easier for people because I think in the end it's so easy to put that stuff off and then end up doing routine things and routine rarely makes us inspired it's been really important for me as well to get kind of refreshed startup life is a lot of hours typically it's really tiring and so it's nice to be able to go on those adventures and get inspired. And I know you've done that a lot where you've gone on trips to learn, take your kids and, and get really excited. It's always been a part of our family life to just pick up and go. And never for a long period of time. We've been to Egypt for Thanksgiving. Carry-ons everywhere. <laughs> yeah, never check luggage, you know, spontaneity, which I think is so much a, a part of experience and travel and adventure is spontaneity. Mm-hmm. But if something strikes our fancy, we just change plans. And I think that that shared experience as a family is important. I always say that my best travel experiences have been my worst travel experiences because they're the most memorable. And there's been a lot of those. But I think that's part of it is like kind of getting outside your comfort zone, not really knowing what to expect. And that feeling of, in an optimistic way, the possibilities are endless. I think also sometimes for me, I can get really trapped in my thinking. And so in some ways, just changing where I am or what I'm doing allows me to think differently. You know, I did get into this habit where every moment of every day just got really packed with stuff. Every minute I'd be in a meeting or doing emails and things like that. And so one of the nice things about doing experiences, I can't be on my phone or I can't be thinking about those things. They're quite immersive. And so for me, it doesn't have to be an experience like something at peak. It could be just even doing a yoga class. I kind of, you know, if the pose is difficult, I am not thinking about all the other things that are racing through my head. I do need that time sometimes to decompress and reflect. And sometimes things will pop into my head because I've given myself that break on my to-do list and it's just roaming. And so I think that's really important. I think we forget that. And there's a period where like I got rid of that reflection time because I kind of you know, was listening to audiobooks on the way to things. And, you know, every moment was Multitasking, so was getting... multitasking, multitasking. Exactly. I think especially as women, I think we often like, we kind of want to be perfect. And so every moment I've just got to get better at whatever I'm doing. I've got to be learning. I've got to oh be my better. God, that's and so true. 
And so I kind of, you know, I kept doing that. And before I knew it, every moment of every day was packed with stuff. I was probably feeling guilty about the things I still wasn't doing. And I didn't have time to reflect. And in the end, those reflection moments are where I, I do have these aha moments. And, and so I've had to kind of give that back to myself because it's it's counterintuitive. You sometimes think, oh, well, if I'm always listening to something or I'm always trying to learn, then that's going to be better. But I do think your brain needs time to just be able to wander. And I think for me, I really enjoy seeing beautiful nature that really helps ground me. And when I'm in somewhere that's really beautiful, it just kind of makes me think that there's so much more that's bigger than ourselves. And it does help me think about humanity and being really connected and makes me actually think a lot more about others. It's really easy when you're living in a city, doing your to-do list and your day-to-day to forget that. And so that's why I love nature. Well, that's why I always say that it's not even when you're traveling, it's not even really about like seeing something that is like, that's my inspiration. It's the idea that you're away from everything that's familiar and you're in this other place, you're present and your mind can open up to new experiences and new ideas. And it's not so much about like, okay, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to be inspired whether I like it or not. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really like that. Actually, one thing that I've always found really interesting is that Nobel Prizes are very rarely won by people who are working in a specific industry. So if you're like a chemist, you, you rarely end up having those guys be the people that win and have these breakthroughs. It's often somebody who's working in an adjacent field where they can, they understand it, but they don't, they're not constrained structurally by all the rules and regulations. And so Mm. it'll end up being someone who's in biology having this big breakthrough instead. And so I actually think that sometimes being set in your ways and all of the things you're supposed to do stops you from being able to think differently. And I think certainly for me, getting out of my comfort zone makes me think about things and it's not all linear. It's not about it has to be this way or these are the rules. It kind of just makes me think about things differently. And and to be honest, when you're stuck somewhere and you made a mistake or things aren't what you expected, you just kind of have to go with it and run with it. And so I think all of those things are really good for your own creativity and, and brain. And I think it it actually really has a big impact on our ability to be able to have breakthroughs or, or come up with things that are very special. Mm-hmm. Having things that are out of your control, I think that always makes you think about creative ideas. Mm-hmm. I also think with travel and gaining creative inspiration, it's often framed as this creative entrepreneur goes to a place and rather than it changing your mindset, it's more framed as like appropriation of that culture. And in reality, I feel like it's not that you're going to a place and, you know, seeing a print on something and copying that exact print. It's being in a culture where you are completely out of your comfort zone. You're completely changing your train of thought and what you've gotten used to in your hyperproductive life. So I do think when we think about travel or experience, even in your local city, it's about completely changing your mental state and getting out of that rut. I actually, I'm also a massive history buff. And so for me, like the the way that you can learn about something is really interesting. And so I'm kind of desperate to do a couple of things in New York. So maybe, Cynthia, I'm going to rope you in on this because I want to go I'll and do it. Do anything, this. whatever it yeah, is, I, you I'm know, in. I, there's, there's kind of, we have this tour of the subway in New York and oh, I've yeah. never really 
Yeah. The, the abandoned subway station? Um, just generally the subway and like all of these cool things that are in the subway. I oh, don't, that's you know, it's, cool. It's, it's great, like his, historically, like how that's evolved. Like I don't know a lot about it. I want to learn. Um, or there's um, a catacombs tour. And so I'm really excited to do that. So I think in some ways, if you are quite curious and I love history, it's a really great way for me to learn. And often when I go to other countries, it's it kind of gives me the reason to start reading books and learning about the history. So I, I went to Sri Lanka. A lot of it is really beautiful and there's kind of amazing Buddhist history, but then it has this really awful recent history with the Civil War. Yeah. And, you know, I was reading this incredible book at the same time as I was kind of traveling. And it just, for me, it just made me connect with that country so much more and think about what happened, you know, this kind of thousand years of history that was really fascinating. And I feel really privileged to have been able to learn that. And I always end up when I'm in those places being able to learn a lot more, appreciate that. And it gives me almost like a reason to do it. In some ways, if I'm not going somewhere, I'm not sure that I would have picked up that book. But when I get the chance to do it, I really enjoy it. And I think it, there's really valuable lessons around that. And, you know, history does repeat itself. And so I appreciate being able to learn from that. My question is, what do you think the next big trends in travel and experience are? So I think a lot of it is around us kind of doing more stuff for the weekends that are different. So I think you already see that. I think it's also around kids a lot. I think people are recognizing that you don't want your kids to have the same framework. So I think there's really cool experiences we're seeing where, you know, you can take your kids to kind of concepts of museums that are kind of quite accessible and young and fun through to like there's experiences that, you know, kind of bring Broadway to kids, you know, so that you can kind of have an immersive experience oh, as a kid. Cool. And so I think there's a lot of that. And I think there's going to be a lot more of getting to know your local city and people's passions. So it's a distillery, right? And if you're passionate about booze, you can go and learn about about that. So I think something that we're definitely seeing big trends on. I think the other thing is the kind of constant concept of leisure, like business leisure, where people kind of having to go somewhere for work or for another reason. And they're recognizing, hey, like I'm going to take another day or two because actually I can even spend an afternoon here and get to do something different and experience something different. And so I think we're recognizing now how important stuff like that is. Leisure? Yeah, leisure. Okay. Wow. I like that. I haven't heard of that before. I'm, I think I'm you, interested. That's yours. Also, I feel like with people, with, you know, the gig economy and more freelancing and all of that stuff, there's more opportunities to be incorporate. like, yeah, incorporate experience while you're traveling for work just because you're, schedule is more flexible. I completely oftentimes. agree. I think that, I think our concepts of work are changing so much and they have to. And I think that even for me, when I started my career, like the first job I went to work in was at Goldman and then Blackstone in finance. And you know, it was such a kind of, I've got to work 80 hours a week. If I, you know, my thing was, you know, having come from this kind of quite like, you know, different background, I kind of was like, I've got to prove to people that I'm smart and I can do things. And I kind of, you know, didn't think that people could think that I was good enough unless I showed these ticks, Oxford and these finance places. And and actually it just wasn't that inspiring to to spend so many hours in the office working on things that weren't that weren't kind of helping my skill development and things like that. It just felt like it was doing for the sake of doing. And so I do think we're moving from a world where we think like working 80 hours a week is the only way that you can do your best work. Like I think actually hard work really matters. I think all of us have probably had to work really hard. But I think you've also got to learn to work smart and realize that there's a balance in this kind of really necessary rejuvenation. Because if you don't do it, then you get burnt out or can't think about problem solving. You know, so as a CEO, you know, we've got a couple of hundred people that work at Peak. And, and so one of my big jobs actually as a CEO is helping people problem solve. You know, I found just even getting, you know, decent night's sleep 
makes a difference to me and being able to be productive that next day. And so it's the simple things. I think that when I was younger in my career, I kind of didn't think I should. I thought I should be tougher. And now I realize actually like we run marathons often, not sprints. And so you've got to make sure that you're taking care of your brain as much as anything else. It's this work to live or live to work concept that I feel like a lot of people, I have conversations about this pretty often because I'm 20. I have one year left at NYU. A lot of my friends are, and myself included, are at this point in our lives where we're trying to figure out what our careers are going to look like. And it is very much, especially growing up in New York, there is this culture around your career defining you and your drive. And I do think that there are these conversations popping up now where people are like, I'm going to prioritize my happiness and my well-being and work because I have to make money. But at the end of the day, it's less about 80 hours a week and identifying, yeah, exactly. Identifying as your career. Yeah. I think often if you're doing something you're passionate about, you don't really mind. So I find myself working very often late into the night, but I don't really care because I enjoy it and it's fun for me. And so I think if you can do something that you're passionate and excited about, I think that also makes a difference. It's also okay not to know straight away that you're passionate and excited about something, right? So it can take time to figure it out, in which case just being in an environment where you're learning a lot and you're pushing yourself. Because I think one of the things that I didn't do when I was younger is have a lot of confidence. I was a bit scared to say what I thought in a room because frankly, I was the first woman to be hired into my team. There were a hundred people in my team, you know, Blackstone. And so I was the first woman. And so I kind of, you know, I did feel intimidated around that. And I also felt like you had to assimilate a lot and be like everybody else. And in the end, I wasn't. I do feel quite different. You know, I've always probably felt quite different going into places and that's okay. And actually there's real value in being different. And we realize now that that diversity of experience or background can actually be extremely helpful in organizations because your thinking can be different. And yeah, I think when I was, when I was in my early twenties, I was desperate to fit in. I was desperate to behave like others around me. And actually I really felt like I couldn't is feminine, right? I think it's funny for me now, when you think about the skills of CEOs and what makes them extremely good is when they are able to motivate and manage a team really well. And what does that take? That takes ability to be highly empathetic, right? It takes an ability to have great vision and, and thinking about things. It takes an ability to be able to multitask often. And yet these are all characteristically things that we associate with women as a gender being able to be better to do. And yet all of our images of successful CEOs are guys called John, mm-hmm. right? Um, oh, and so yeah. I think that for me, when I was younger, I didn't realize that you could be feminine and a great leader. And I think that's a really important thing for us to change. And I remember I wouldn't kind of, I was scared to buy clothes that weren't kind of, you know, boxy suits. Every time I see you, you look amazing. <laughs> Thank heels, you. you know, five inch heels, little short skirts, jewelry, makeup. You always look so put together. Thank you. But so feminine that I'm sure it's been a journey to get to this point. Yeah, you know, it's funny also. I think one thing, you know, I've always kind of loved fashion. I think part of it is because when I was growing up, I just wasn't allowed to choose what I wear. And so I wore traditional Pakistani clothes, which is shawar kameez. And that means that it's kind of kind of a baggy dress, a scarf to cover your hair and kind of baggy trousers. And so it kind of 
it meant that I was never able to have any creativity or choose what I wore. And when I first started working in finance, I also kind of wore my boxy suits because I needed to be taken seriously. And it was a huge liberation to realize it's okay that I like fashion. It's actually a way I'm very creative. And, you know, I love being able to mix and match and, and put things together. And and that's okay. It's fun to have something playful that you can think about. And it took me a long time to realize that that was okay and that there was a version of leadership that involved being able to express your femininity. And one way that I might express my femininity is with the clothes that I choose to wear. And that doesn't make me any less serious. It doesn't mean that I'm not passionate about my work. It doesn't mean that I'm not working extremely hard or thinking of good solutions to problems. So I think that's been important for me because I didn't have those kind of ideas when I was growing up. And I thought that in order to be a successful CEO, you had to be a certain way. And it often meant that you had to be aggressive in a certain way or you couldn't wear dresses. It's actually the opposite, I think, because if you're happy with what you're wearing and feel confident, that is what leads to success. You know, you're feeling good, you're feeling confident, and you're going to have a much better time going into a tough situation, I think. You know, it seems a little shallow, but I do think it's true that it gives you confidence. I agree. And I think it also, it's a level of authenticity. If you kind of just choose to show up the way that you want to show up that day, right? It means you can be more authentic in other things. And I think for me, it's taken some time to get away from the idea of what I'm supposed to be into who I am, right? And that kind of, there's an image of this is how I'm supposed to be. And this is what people expect of me. And if I want to fulfill this idea of, I think we have an opportunity to build a multi-billion dollar business that is going to change our industry and is already doing that. And we won lots of awards. And I've been fortunate to, to kind of get those accolades. And in the end, we've got this huge opportunity ahead of us. We already helped book hundreds of millions of dollars of bookings of experiences. That's great, but there's so much more to do. And for me, it's important to recognize that that journey is about learning, about maybe being different, about being able to be playful in other parts of your life. It's about being feminine. It's about having fun. All of these things that I associated with success and leadership are not actually what is there. And I've had to learn that being myself, showing my own personality at work, being able to be vulnerable, all of those things that actually in the end are strengths. But for a big part of my early 20s, I just didn't know that. And I think I was kind of, you know, not very comfortable in myself. And so now it's kind of, I am comfortable and, you know, hopefully I can be myself and that's a good thing, right? And, and that authenticity is real and it makes a difference because I think people can tell when you're not being yourself. And I think that starts also on a corporate level because obviously when you were at Blackstone, you were in this environment where that authenticity wasn't necessarily encouraged. So I'm wondering how you encourage that sort of environment at peak? I think a lot of what I really care about is people being extremely curious. And one thing that we've got is that one of our cultural values is also that we learn from each other and that there's no, this has to be this way. You know, the idea that there are rules that are set in stone for us is really silly because especially as a fast growing company, you've got to be willing to change processes and ideas all the time right? And I think that's very, very important to us. I think also, you know, giving people the idea that leadership can look very different, you know? And so, you know, even just myself, another member of executive team as, you know, women of color who are there doing, you know, jobs. Our VP of product is an amazing rock star at what she does. And I think that showing that there's great women leaders and that we approach things differently and that you can do that. I think people, often there's a glass ceiling if you don't see people that look like you at the top. And I think one thing that we are trying to do and we continue to try and do is get paths for that. And so some of our best 
team leads and managers are young women that came to our organization and we've given them that opportunity to accelerate in their careers and take those next steps. And so we try to make it extremely meritocratic. And also instead of it being based on the amount of time you're at peak, it's just, you know, hey, you need to do these few things. And if you hit these things, then you have an opportunity to get to that next level of opportunity. So I think we try to do that a lot. And it's something I think about a lot. And it's actually part of the reason that I really care about female entrepreneurship and young women, because I think that it's really important for us to recognize everything's ahead of you. You can do anything that you want to do. Certainly for me, confidence was my biggest gap. And so often when we are willing to be confident, take that leap, sometimes it's scary, you know, that can make the difference. I also think we've got to be comfortable with people saying no. So, you know, sometimes someone might say no, but it doesn't mean that it's no forever. Actually, it might be no right now. And so I think sometimes putting yourself out there and being comfortable with the idea that somebody's going to say, no, you're not ready for that yet, or I need you to do these three things. um, Great. Now you know what you need to do. I actually think no makes you more creative. If someone says no, you either have to figure out a different way to get to what you wanted or think of something else that's equally as important. I just think, no, it should be an opportunity. Completely agree. And that's optimism for you people. (laughs) Yeah, I just think also like with no, you can learn a lot, right? You get a lot of feedback with no. Yeah. I think in some ways, if we can all have a bit more confidence in ourselves, then those no's won't feel as bad. I remember, you know, certainly for me, even now, when I hear no, it is a bit hard. Or if you get kind of really negative feedback, it can be hard to take that and use it in a positive way. But in the end, all of that negative feedback or those no's, they're the only way you're going to grow and get better. And so embrace that, take that feedback. Totally. um, I've been told no so many times, I can't even think about it, but it just makes me want to do more and be better and figure out other ways and just really keep going. I think no makes you stronger. I think you know, when I was, we've raised about $50 million to date and there's been so many no's and it can be really hard to kind of continue. And so, you know, now we're in this privileged position where the founders of Twitter and CEO of Google and the CEO of Yelp and the founder of Kayak, all these businesses that are actually quite similar to what we do or, or have been quite revolutionary in tech have backed our business and, and given us investment capital. But there's so many people that said no or didn't understand how we could do it or didn't believe that I could do it, right? And that can be really jarring. So I think you do have to fill yourself with a bucket of that validation that you're probably more capable and competent than you think you are. There's probably a really great path ahead of you. And I think those no's are quite debilitating sometimes. So giving yourself the opportunity to process that and be able to move on from it is really important and being comfortable with them. And and I think the more that you can take those no's and realize that they're not a reflection on who you are, right? They're feedback on what could happen next and and what you need to change and what you need. To, and we all need to evolve and change. Right? I mean, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, Cynthia, imagine how much you've changed. And I, th- I feel like you're somebody who's always changing and being willing to do it. And that's okay. Like how else? And we're going to be so different in a decade, right? No means no for a bit. And next time around, it'll probably work out. And even if it doesn't, then there's probably more people to talk to and more things to do. I mean, I think being uncomfortable like that is also a driving force as an entrepreneur. Like I don't ever want to be comfortable. I always want to be just a tiny bit scared, you know, and that's what pushes you forward. My adrenaline surges when things are a little hard or I I feel that I'm out of my comfort zone as well. And it's kind of stressful, but it's also there's something quite energizing about it as well. Maybe we can close on what's the 
best experience that you've done on Peak? Wow, great question. You know, the thing for me is I've done so many. And so as a result, it's always hard. But my actually my favorite experience, I love views. I was living in San Francisco and I did a seaplane tour over the city. And it's so beautiful. I didn't expect it and I'd never been on a seaplane before. And it wasn't crazy expensive and it was just something that like felt really special. And going over the Golden Gate Bridge and seeing the whole city that I'd kind of now gotten to live and, and know, but seeing it in a completely different way was a really special experience for me and really fun. And I ended up taking a friend on it as well afterwards because I wanted to do it twice. And so that was really nice for me. So I'm as somebody who loves views and nature and it was a really special thing for me to do. Awesome. Wait, and can we book that yeah, on Peak? You can book it on there Peak. There you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Ruzwana, maybe you can tell our guests where they can find you. Yeah. So you can find Peak on Peak.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You know, hopefully I get a chance to engage with everybody. And I hope that everybody listening, if you've got an idea or something you want to do, I think I'm hoping that this week you're going to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Maybe you're going to ask for something you didn't expect or you're going to try something you didn't think you could do because I bet you can do more than you think you can. All right. Drop the mic. All right. So I'm so happy that you guys got to listen to our stories today. As always, you can follow us on social media and keep up with our work and our crazy adventures. Then you can follow us on Instagram at Cynthia Rowley and at Kit Keenan. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 